How do you know that you're a woman? How do you know? Right? Okay, here they are. You're always cold. Okay? Number two, a human being has popped out of you. Okay? Uh, you have, if you're a woman, six pillows on your couch. Okay? Uh, you can instantly tell the difference between rustic white co- uh, coffee and uh, farmhouse white paint at a glance. Okay? You kind of know the difference. Uh, maybe uh, you could say your Starbucks coffee is never just black. Uh, there's some other indicators. I better stop before I get in trouble. So uh, I have an assignment, and the assignment is to actually walk through what the Bible would say about the role of men and women, the design that God had laid out for us in the Scripture. Uh, there is one problem. If uh, preaching were a school, uh, your teacher here uh, is a, a master teacher. But on every faculty, there's always one guy, right? And he's got funky shorts, he uh, has weird gym socks, he carries a clipboard and a whistle, right? That's me, all right? I want you to know that right up front. Uh, I'm never content to just teach the Bible accurately, which is, of course, my passion. It's that I want to make sure that you're not just hearing the Word, but what? Doing the Word. I don't want you to be deluding yourself. Uh, Faith without works is what? dead, and therefore I want to make sure you're living it. I'm not content until we begin to see you become more like Jesus Christ, or if you're not a Christian, to come to Christ, that you would be ultimately complete in Christ, and I want Christ formed in you. And it's just the way that I'm built. It's the DNA that I'm coming from. So be prepared for some application and exhortation, okay? I'm I'm warning you up front. It's going to happen all the way through what we're going to be doing. The difficulty that we face uh, when we're talking about this is that God's design for men and for women really hasn't been anywhere near what we find in the Scripture uh, since the 1950s. That's about 70 years ago. And then our culture moved way beyond it. There was little inklings of it, but no longer. It is gone. And there's no way that you're going to live out God's design for yourself or train your children to understand a true biblical man, a true biblical woman, unless you intentionally, in our day, purpose to train it. Are you getting with this? You can't just hope that it's going to happen. You must be intentional in your discipleship of your young men and women who are being raised in your homes. And I think you need to train. Now, I'm going to give you, I did a whole giant doctoral thesis on discipleship and training. Let me give you the simple points. Are you ready? Training is instruction. So you've got to instruct them in what the Bible has to say. You have to, number two, model for them what the Bible says. Not perfectly, but progressively to demonstrate Christ, to demonstrate the Word to them. And the third one, which is almost missing completely today, you've got to practice them. Practice them. Training involves practice. So you have them go out and you evaluate. Just like Jesus in Mark 6 sent out two by two. And then when they came back, if you read Mark 6, they actually debriefed their time out there. That's what you need to do with your children. You got to instruct them. You need to model for them, not perfect models, but models who are seeking God's will passionately. And three, you got to practice them you got to help them to learn what it means to be a man, to be a woman in our society today. They're not going to get this message anywhere except the Church of Jesus Christ today. You get it? So you've got to do it, and we've got to seek to really move in that direction. Uh, you've got to learn it from the Word. You've got to study it as a single. You've got to embrace it, prepare for it, extol His design, because God's design, are you ready for an Amen is under attack. Amen? It is. Uh, Eminent theologian, contemporary scholar, and sociological expert, Cindy Lauper, um, (laughs) the orange-headed rock singer, said in an interview, the three biggest oppressors of women. Are you ready what they are? She said the government, she said the family, and she said the church. And little did she know that she was exposing whose side she's on by basically attacking all three God-ordained institutions. Now, this morning, I could actually remind you of the decline that the Bible tells us 
is how God is involved in pouring out His wrath and ministering His judgment on planet Earth uh, with the decline of Romans 1, where God gave them over to lust, God gave them over to degrading passions, and God gave them over to a depraved mind. I believe that we're at number three, and that we're watching the, the real the crumbling and decline of our culture. That's just a personal belief. Uh, but I could shock you with that. We could walk that through. I could shock you with the viewpoints and the agenda, which is horrific, of the LGBTQRSTUV, that group of people. I could burden you with the transgender confusion. Uh, but I really don't want to do any of that. What I want to do is to teach God's Word, to show you what God has to say, to uh, inspire you and motivate you to bring some, not only sense in your own life, what God designed, but also begin to be more verbal with that. As you're out and about, to say things like, even in the midst of conversation, I think that God's ways are better. I think that the original plan for men and women is the best plan. And to begin to make those kind of statements, even in a difficult environment, we need to be more verbal and uh, almost teasing them with, hey, take a look at what God has to say because He lays it all out. And it's a perfect design. So by way of introduction, a very quick summary. I'm probably going to go a little bit longer with the ladies uh, just because, uh, you know, ladies are very complex. And uh, I'm going to go a little bit shorter with men because men are simple creatures. So here we go. But I would like to do a summary of Titus chapter 2, but before I get there, I want to have you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Very briefly, we're just going to highlight a couple of points, then we're going to go to Ephesians 5, then we're going to go to Titus chapter 2. These are significant in our understanding of God's design for men and women. And as you look at Genesis 1.26, all of creation has led up to the sixth day. Uh, there is a very definitive focus in the Hebrew text that God is moving towards the creation of men and women made in His image. Take a look at Genesis 1.26. It is saying this, uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then in verse 27, God made man in His image. In the image of God, He created them male and female, he created them. Different than day one, two, three, four, and five, day six has a very personal focus from God when he says, let us make man in the creation of Adam and Eve. Plus, the us pronoun and the entire creation account hints at the triune God being involved in this process. And we know through the context of Scripture that they were involved in the creation of men and women, and that is part of God's image that human beings alone bear. You need to understand that the triune nature of God is quite a bit of what we're putting on display. There is one God, uh, there are three divine persons, the persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Again, God is three persons, each person is fully God, and there is one God. Uh, that's right out of all orthodoxy. Hopefully you're embracing that and not wanting to throw your Bible at me. But interesting enough, uh, God is one and yet three in an eternal relationship. And that is why we enjoy relationship. Are you tracking with me? In eternity past, God has been in an eternal relationship. In eternity future, God will be still in an eternal relationship. And the reason why we enjoy such a unique relationship in marriage and also love relationships in general is because God has been in an eternal relationship. Are you tracking with me? This is very vital that you understand that we're emulating Him in this process. The oneness of God in also the uniqueness of our distinct roles. So that is who God is. We're made in His image. And so there is a oneness in marriage. Plus, there is a unique uh, functioning distinctly as male and female. And all great Christian marriages pursue oneness. A oneness as well as God's unique design for male and female, husband and wife. So here's the starting place to understanding God's design, God Himself. 
We've got to start there, theologically. There's a massively much more to say about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I don't have enough time, but let me give you a couple of highlights that you would already know. These are just things that you would embrace, uh, that we're created male and female by God's design, that we are created male and female in God's image, that man was created first and given the responsibility to lead. Women are actually at the very beginning in Genesis called helpers, that men and women are partners in exercising dominion over God's creation. All of that is found in there. In fact, one of the things that we don't want to negate is male and female in marriage were to bring happiness to one another and not misery. That was God's design. And then the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3 created conflict, distortion, competition, instead of oneness and harmony. Now, the current trends that we're seeing is crazy. Anybody want to say amen to that? Uh, the people are actually mutilating themselves uh, in defiance of God's design. Uh, you see brokenness, you see rebellion and all of that, and they never stop being what God created them to be. So if they've changed, they haven't changed, they're still just a mutilated man, or they're still just a mutilated woman. Are you tracking with me? You cannot undo what the Creator has done. And it's essential that we learn what God has designed for each individual sex. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself confused and competing instead of convinced and complimentary. Kind of like the little girl who was sitting in her daddy's lap and she asked daddy, uh, did God make you daddy? He said, yes. And then she looked in the mirror at herself and she said, well, did God make me? And he goes, of course, dear. And she thought for a minute and said to her daddy, God seems to be doing better work lately, daddy. Uh, so, <laughs> now if you would turn to Ephesians chapter, chapter 1, chapter, actually chapter 5, turn to Ephesians 5 if you would in the New Testament. What you have in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is actually the longest expression of biblical teaching on marriage in one section as well as... Uh, the roles and the function and design of God for men and women. And interesting enough, before you can fully understand Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33, you actually would all agree that you need to understand Ephesians chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Yes? Yeah, we all, always want to see everything in context. And so Hebrews chapter 1 through 5 help us to understand the suppositions of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33. So in Ephesians 1, God defines all of existence, all of existence he determined would be for his glory. One of the suppositions in marriage in particular that God has for you is that your marriage is literally not for you. Your marriage is for him. It's to bring him glory. It's to point to him, to demonstrate his character. And that's what God determined at the very beginning, his sovereign will that it would be for the praise of His glory. Ephesians 2. To live God's design that you'd find in Ephesians 5, you need to have radical salvation. And Paul describes it as you were dead and God made you alive. That's pretty radical, wouldn't you agree? It's very radical in the sense that you cannot live God's design unless you have been born again. Regenerated, transformed, changed. And that comes with submitting to Christ. That comes with being justified, being made right by Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, there's a huge section in that chapter about knowing the depths and the breadths of God's love and reminding you that the source of love in marriage and in relationship is not your spouse. It's God Himself. He actually says in Romans 5.5, He sheds His love abroad in our hearts. It's the resource that we pull in which to make marriage work. It is that we're relying on Him to give to our spouse. In Ephesians 4, He reminds that each man and woman is to be intertwined with the body of Christ. You women need other godly women, plural. You men need other godly men, plural. You couples need other godly couples, plural. You need the context of the local body of Christ in order to become all that God designed you to be. We tend to look at our individual lives or our marriages as extremely private, and yet God has us intermixed within the context of older women training younger. We'll see that in a minute. And then Ephesians chapter 5. 
Before you can pursue God's design in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, you need to make sure that you are, Ephesians 5, 18, he says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. The number one command of marriage, the number one command is be filled with the Spirit. It is. In fact, without giving you a big overall understanding of this, that command be filled produces fruit in verses 19 and 20. And 21, he says, be subject to one another. That verb subject is listed there in verse 21, but it's not listed in verse 22 when it says, wives, be subject to your husbands, because it's assumed from verse 21, which is a normal process in the Greek language. But what I'm saying to you is that it's connected. There's a connection between being filled with the Spirit and marriage. You can't have a godly marriage. You can't fill out God's design for marriage, Ephesians 5, to 33, without the filling of the Spirit. If you're not in the Spirit, you're in the flesh, which means that it's not going to work. It's your strength. You need God's strength. And that's what God designed from the very beginning. Then when you finally get to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, now you can begin to understand that all that is necessary for that to occur, all of what Ephesians has talked about, and that verb be filled is amazing. It's present tense, which means it's ongoing. It's an imperative, which means it's a command that you have to obey. It's, it's actually um, a plural command, which means that it's for everyone. And here's the, the capper. It's a passive command. Passive. It's my favorite verb in the New Testament. I know, that's weird. But I understand. What it means is this. You've just been given a command by God that you can't obey. It has to happen to you. If it was an active, you'd, you'd be doing it. But it's passive, which means it has to happen to you. Are you tracking with me? So you've been ordered by God to be filled with the Spirit, but you can't do it. What that means is you need to be dependent. You need to be reliant. You know how you, when you walked with your kids when they were really small or your grandkids, you know, they put their hand up and they can barely walk, so they grab onto your hand and they kind of walk along with you. Anybody with me on this? Okay, you remember that? You know, they, they kind of walk funny when they're really young. You know, they're learning to walk. So they put their hand in your hand. That's what the Christian life is. You put your hand in God's hand and then you exercise your will by walking in obedience to the Word of God, all the time being dependent upon Him and reliant. It's not do this, do this, do this, do this in the Christian life. Are you ready? It's D period, O period. It's depend and obey. Depend and obey. You're reliant upon the Spirit of God and you step out. And you need that in marriage in order for men to fill out God's design and for women to fill out their design. That's the only way you can pull it off, is to be dependent. You need to be saturated in the Word of God. When you cross-reference Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians, you find that the parallel account is Colossians 3.16, which is let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. You need to be saturated in God's Word so you can walk in obedience to God's Word. You need to be dependent upon the Spirit of God. You can see that in the passive. You need to be confessing all known sin because you don't want to grieve the Spirit. You don't want to quench the Spirit through you. And then the Spirit's always manifested in service and in sharing the Gospel. So there's that outward expression. It's meant for others. And so therefore, now you know that you can begin to fill out the challenges of Ephesians 5.22-33, to which is headship, right? Men loving their wives. We'll see that in a minute. We can see that in the next session. And then wives submitting to their husbands. And then if you look at Ephesians 5, it's really broken up into two major parts. The first part is the uniqueness of men and women. Headship, loving, submission, that kind of thing. Then when you look at the next part, he says that you would love your wife like you love your own body. What's he talking about? You're one. You're one. He even says in the next verse, you know, that you'd leave your parents, cleave to your spouse, and become one flesh. He's talking about oneness there. So the first part of Ephesians 5 is the uniqueness of your role. The second part of Ephesians 5 is the oneness. Now, who's like that? Who has unique roles, but also is one? Who? God. You're emulating. Your children need to see oneness and the uniqueness of their roles to understand the Trinity. You're supposed to put them on display. You're supposed to be something marvelous. Listen, there is an amazing testimony that the, the church of Jesus Christ has almost lost today, and that's the testimony of unity. You know what? You begin in your marriage to actually love your spouse, enjoy each other, and actually live out God's design, there are people in this community that are going to look at that and go, I don't know what that is, but whatever that is, I want it. 
When they, they see a church that is one heart, one mind, they're going to be blown away, wiping the steam off the windows, going, I don't know what's going on in there, but that's what I want. I want to be a part of that. Because the world knows nothing of this. They know nothing of the supernatural oneness and uniqueness of marriage. They don't. Sorry, I'm going to get off my notes, and this is dangerous. So, anyway, understand the oneness and the uniqueness is what's driving this. And it's God's character that's coming through. We'll explain that a little bit more as we progress. But as Christians, it's the filling of the Spirit that enables you wives to die to self, to submit to your husbands. Wives, to treat their husbands as if he were Christ. Wow. Giving him their best. Husbands, grow to become the responsible leader, the head. Guiding their wives and their family in order to follow God's Word. Most often, if you misunderstand this, and typically young men who aren't married do, it's not do what I say. It's do what He says. You're constantly, I mean, 98% of headship and submission is not do what I say. It's never, it's do what, let's do what he says. Let's initiate what God wants. Let's go down that road. Let's make sure we're pursuing him. That's what God designed. Husbands die to self to become the sacrificial lover, treating their wives next to Christ as the most important person on the planet. Most important person on the planet, initiating God's will into every aspect of your life. And it's the Spirit who enables you to be one. Some couples really are way over on the one side. Other couples are way over on the distinction side. And and really what you're trying to do is find it right in the middle and no one's ever going to be perfectly balanced, but you want to be one yet unique. And that's God's design. And it's it's fantastic. Now, think about how important the filling of the Spirit is to marriage. Because who of you wouldn't delight with being with someone who is filled with the Spirit most of the time and they walk in the Spirit? Because when they walk in the Spirit, they produce the fruit of the Spirit. And who doesn't want to be around somebody who is loving, joyful, self-controlled, gentle, patient, faithful? Are you tracking with me? The fruit of the Spirit. I mean, who wouldn't want to come home to that? Who wouldn't want to have somebody come home like that? Yay! I mean, that's what they're all about. And it's the Spirit of God that creates that. Now understand, you may be here today and you may have never experienced any of this in your life. And all i got to say to you is Don and Terry's story. You say, who's that? This was, uh, early on in my ministry, the couple who were a disaster. I mean, a mighty disaster. And they got a hold. They, they said, Lord, you got to change our lives. And they began to implement what the Bible had to say about marriage in their marriage. And I am making no exaggeration. They give marriage ceremonies, uh, not ceremonies, uh, seminars around the world. Because they're so competent. They're such a great model. God totally transformed this wreck into this incredible treasure. If you're there today, there's hope. That's what I'm saying. There's hope, great hope. That God can transform you. Now, but you know, and I know, until heaven, you're still going to battle being a godly man or a godly woman. Can I hear an amen? Still going to battle. There's still going to be conflict. You're still going to make mistakes. You're going to do it. Everybody with me on that? Until you enter the door of heaven, you're not going to be perfect. Are you comfortable with that? I hope so. I, you know, you're going to make mistakes. I accidentally gave my wife, Jean, a glue stick instead of chapstick, and she's still not talking to me. So, uh, anyway. So what is God's unique design for women? All right, are you ready? Here we go. Turn to Titus chapter 2, please. Titus chapter 2. The book of Titus was written by Paul to Titus after his first Roman imprisonment. And Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to set things in order, to appoint elders, to basically get things established. Uh, Titus is an apostolic assistant. He's not really a pastor. Uh, He's a missionary church planter. He's going to only be there for about six months, according to Titus 3. And therefore, he's there to help them to work well together. And one of the things he does, he speaks to every age group as to God's design for them and what they should prioritize there on Crete. And what he's done is basically describes the essential qualities of a young woman. 
And so I want you to read verses 4 and 5. It says that the older women, get this, are to train the younger women. This is a discipleship focus here. This is your mentoring them, you're modeling for them, you're instructing them, and you're training them where they're practicing that they may encourage the young women, verse 4, to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Let's work our way through this. The main issue that Paul and Titus are dealing with on Crete is that the Cretans were having a hard time living out the truth. They were having a hard time putting their beliefs into behavior. So living it out. So he gives seven essential qualities that the young godly woman are to be a part of her lifestyle, her pursuit. Uh, you single women, these are the qualities you want to begin to live in order to manifest what God designed for you and prepare you for what's ahead for most of you. For you marrieds, this is what you're living out. This is your curriculum. You go after it and after it. You don't ever meet with another woman and you get this down after one meeting, right? This is a pursuit that you're going after. And understand, for the single men, this is the list that you need to have in your checklist of what you're looking for. And for all of us, this is a target and a process. Can I hear an amen to that? We're going after this. We're never going to arrive at this. So this is what he says. He says, maritally, she's to love her husband. Maternally, love her children. Mentally, to be sensible. Morally, to be pure. Domestically, to be a worker at home. Socially, to be kind. Spiritually, to be subject to her husband. So let's look at each one of them maritally, she's to love her husband. Now, when Paul says this to Titus on Crete, there's basically two kinds of marriages. Uh, there's one that's been arranged for political reasons, and there's another that's arranged for the offspring of male offspring. All right? uh, and note, neither of them had to do with love or romance. In a light of a culture like that, an exhortation for a Christian woman to actually love her husband is not easy, but Paul even takes it a step further. The, the word that he uses for love is not what you would normally think. You would think that this is agape, that sacrificial, die-to-self, non-emotional commitment. That's not what he asks for here. He says, I want the women to be trained by the older women to phileo their husbands, to like their husbands, to be in relationship, to be a comrade, to share, to be best friends with their husband. God's goal for the young woman is to have a love for her husband that is more than just doing all that's required, but actually a wife that is cherishing and can be friends with her husband. Now this requires time and energy. So in a marital relationship and in filling out God's design for you, you need to understand God eternally, the Father loves the Son. The Son eternally loves the Father in relationship. And in marriage, we're to have that kind of commitment of heart. This ongoing relationship. It takes time to be one and also to fill out your unique roles. It takes time. you got to work at your marriage. Uh, very, very early, I, the man who performed my marriage ceremony uh, said to me, you know, never stop working at your marriage. Never stop. Always work at it. And then something happened. Please don't ask me for it because I don't have it. But there was this giant list that somebody gave us and it, it was filled with every sports option, every game option, and anything you could think of. I mean, it was pages long, almost 10, of, of just all these items that you could do as a couple, that you would want to do as an individual. And it had one, two, three, four next to each one of them. And so you're supposed to go through and rate it. If it was a four, it means you love doing this every day. And a one was, I never want to do this, Right? And so my wife and I, we filled this out. And in our first 10 years of marriage, all we did was fours. All we did was the stuff that we both liked. When we measured them up, hers was a four, I was a four, that's what we'll do. And it was great because it cultivated that kind of relationship. And we were very busy. Uh, we were very young. We were very poor. And we were in ministry and we loved it. But every chance we got, we did fours. We didn't even bother with the threes or the twos or the ones. That also meant that we gave up a lot. I literally was born with a backpack on. I spent almost every vacation, about three times a year, up in the high Sierras. Okay, right, right down here the road here. Uh, amazingly. My wife uh, hates dirt. Um, <laughs> so we didn't do that anymore. <clears throat> um, 
My wife adores word games. I can't spell. So we, we just didn't do that. But we, we were okay. We gave up some things. But we did those things that we both love doing. And it created that sense of oneness that God is talking about here. And again, I don't have that sheet for you, so don't ask. But understand, uh, it wasn't easy in Titus' day. And it's not easy today. I mean, how many truly happy couples do you know? So <clears throat> let me give you some ideas about what are some ways a young woman can you know, pursue this liking of her husband. Well, if you're a single gal, uh, be the kind of gal that develops a godly reputation. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, widows were to have a reputation for good works. Proverbs 31, 31, her works praise her in the gate. She's known. Uh, honestly, I heard about my wife before I ever met her. And it was, it was the kind of thing that all my mentors and some men that I really, really respected, they would talk about Cindy and Becky and all these other names. And then they'd say Jean, but they'd say it like this, Jean. And as a single guy, I'm like, what is that all about? You know? And I'm hearing she's fun. She's gifted in ministry. She's super cute. She's a servant. And I'm really intrigued. And when I met her, I honestly thought she didn't leave footprints. You know, I mean, it's like she just walked above the ground because all this big buildup. But she had a rep. She had a rep of, of being one who loved Christ and wanted to serve him. You know that Boaz knew about Ruth long before he met her. And there's something powerful about having a reputation of a, being a servant of Christ, being a, a godly young woman. So be that kind of gal who has a biblical lens and a biblical pursuit, and maybe a biblical lens towards young men. I'm not saying play hard to get, but if you're single, don't be the gal who you know, falls for the first guy who pays attention to you. Uh, you know, don't partner off with a guy that you can't marry uh, or you shouldn't marry uh, if he's not a believer and not sound in doctrine. And I like to add, write this down, not proven. Not proven. Proven is faithfulness to Christ and His Word over time, meaning faithful in ministry, faithful to a local church, <clears throat> faithful to be accountable to older men, uh, lives a life of spirit-filled self-control, and is a servant, because the greatest among you will be your... <clears throat> That's right. <clears throat> Don't date a guy because he has puppy dog eyes, he wears a blue jean coat, and has the same name as your favorite childhood toy. You know, his name is Tonka, or, uh, <laughs> or worse, Barbie. <clears throat> um, College gals used to tell me, he's got to be 6'2", eyes of blue, and he's got to drive a Porsche. Blonde hair, too. And, uh, you know, I lived long enough as a college pastor to know what they ended up with. 5'1", bald, and drives an electric bike. So um, (laughs) make certain that he's proven. Uh, That's a man that is easy to like. In fact, Paul reminds Titus to motivate older women. Now get this, older women motivated to teach, to model, to practice Train the younger wives to like their husbands. Don't believe the lie, and the lie of the Christian single is that somehow I can walk down the aisle and say I do, and I'm instantly ready for marriage. You want to be prepared for that. You need to get ready now as a single. And even when married, this verse to young wives, you need discipleship of the older, godly, not singular, but plural women investing into you to like your husbands how much more do singles need discipleship now in order to make marriage work later build relationships with older godly saints build that relationship with that older couple and a biblically solid older couple start asking them questions and taking the steps to be prepared for you men uh, the right woman if you're single here is the christ-like woman Uh, the bible says and god says the best wife is the woman of character uh, you can find a woman of character and you're going to die happy. Not the charmer, not the natural beauty. Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So stop looking, if you're a single guy, for merely the externals. You should and she should be attractive to you. But the ultimate woman is the authentic woman of God. The ultimate woman. Character matters most. You should desire your wife or your wife-to-be, and your wife should desire your husband or you know, husband-to-be. Beauty can kind of contains a, like a two-fold exhortation. So let me give you those. Uh, wives, um, it's okay to be desirable to your husband. It's, it's actually a good thing. Um, if the barn needs a little paint, it's okay to slap it on. 
Um, Husbands, you need to recognize that beauty is genuinely relative. Now, I don't have to prove this to you, because all of you have seen pictures of women in the early 1800s. You've seen them, right? And they're actually supposed to be beautiful. And when you look at them, you're like, they're not beautiful to me. It was a different standard back then. It was. It just, people looked at beauty differently. And when this hit me, I decided to do some weird thinking. So I'm going to share my weird thinking with you. This is all me. You can throw this away. Uh, I decided to make my wife the standard of beauty. Culture, culture has no right to tell me what to think. So I thought, I'm going to make her the standard of beauty. And then I got real sciency about it. Um, I love science. And, and uh, no lust, I put on my lab coat. And uh, Jean turned 40. And I was on a trip on an airplane. And I thought, I'm going to look at all the women that get off this plane. No lust, just look. And say, how does Jean compare? And every 40-year-old that got off the plane, she rocked it. Because she had become, to me, the standard of beauty. No one was better looking to me than, than her. Does that make sense? And then 50, I put the lab coat back on, did the same thing. 60, same thing. She's right now at marriage weight. She is, man, I'm telling you. Okay, make your wife the standard of beauty for you. Don't tell, let culture tell you what to think. You say you're living in a fantasy world, but I like it. The character is, though, what will carry your marriage. Character. For better, for worse, for rich, for poor, character. So he or she would love Christ more than you. That's a woman that you can trust. That's a woman you can respect. So older women are to train the younger women to like their husbands. Number two in your outline. Maternally. Maternally, she's to... Love her children. Now, next to her husband, the godly woman must love her kids, which is the most uh, future mothers kind of seem really easy. How can anybody not like kids? They're so entertaining. You know, say, take Tommy. Tommy is uh, a a little boy, and, and he's telling his teacher every week about the coming birth of a baby brother that's going to occur in their home. And the teacher just hears it every day. You know, I got a baby brother, baby brother. Well, at home, Tommy's sitting next to his mom, who's now big pregnant, and mom decides to let Tommy feel the baby kicking in her womb. And Tommy feels that, and his eyes bug out, his mouth drops open. Well, what was strange is that then Tommy went back to school and stopped talking about the coming baby brother. So after about two weeks, the teacher said, Tommy, what, what happened to the baby brother that's going to be born in your home. And he burst into tears. And he said, I think mommy ate it. So (laughs) kids are fun. Grandkids even better. Yet nothing can be more difficult than loving kids. Now think about it. After four kids, wake up in a bad mood, eat all the cookies but one, talk only in a whine, only scream their questions, refuse to eat any meal without complaint, stick the remaining cookie in the stereo somewhere, break a window, torture the neighbor's cat, eat the house plants, and mark on the walls with a permanent marker, and they do all of that before 10 o'clock. You know, and then, of course, if you have teenagers and they've determined that moods should be the dictation of their entire life, now you've got a whole new ball game. That's why Paul doesn't command wives to love their children. He exhorts them to love their children, but he goes beyond just saying the duty of it. He actually goes into, I want you to same word, phileo. I want you to like them, to care for them, to cherish them, to enjoy them. Now, in the first century, children <clears throat> were a burden, <clears throat> and they were often more mouths to feed and meant to busier lives. And in no exaggeration, the Roman society, people often lacked natural affection, so weak, deformed, or female offspring other than the firstborn female were often killed rather than actually cared for. And our circumstances are becoming somewhat the same. With the sin of abortion and a society that views the function of a mother as second best to a career, pushing our children off to daycare, and yet according to God's Word, being a full-time mother is the highest privilege and a mother's greatest potential influence for the kingdom of God and even to overcome the stigma of leading us through the fall 
That's what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 tells us. It illustrates a mother's importance. After discussing the design of a woman in public worship, Paul says this in 2.15, But women are to be saved or preserved through the bearing of children. They overcome the stigma that Eve led us into the fall if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In other words, when a woman's greatest impact for the kingdom of God will be her influence in her kids. And you overcome the stigma of the fall by raising a next generation of children who follow Christ from the bottom up. You know, why is it that when you're watching a football game and the camera zooms in on a 300-pound lineman and he knows the camera's there, what's he say? What's he say? Hi, Mom. And because mom discipled him, and, uh, and she was influenced by an older godly woman, so there's that sense of discipleship that's going on through the context of that home. It's important that you understand that parenting, the verb is actually, there is none in the New Testament. It's discipleship. It's a discipleship. An intentional relationship for the purpose of either coming to Christ or becoming like Christ in the context of the church for God's glory. How do you know someone you're interested in will be a great parent? Well, do they disciple? That's what parenting is, discipleship. And that's part of what God has called us to do. Notice Paul's order. He says, I want you to like your husband first. Second, I want you to like your children. Third, the next goal is women are to be mentally sensible. Mentally sensible. That means that God expects you women to be in your right mind as we say in student ministries, she's not one French fry short of a Happy Meal. Uh, number two, sensibility means she rarely panics or loses control over her emotions. And number three, sensibility means a woman exercises common sense. Uh, she's praying for the wisdom of James, uh, using her mind to make biblical decisions, biblically to be sensible. She is a thinking woman. Quality of sensibility <clears throat> is the most repeated quality single quality in the entire book of Titus. Not only was the Christian community in Crete not living out their doctrine, but the entire society on Crete was actually without living sensibly. And that's found in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, 13, and 14. Take a look at it. Titus 1, 12, 13, and 14. It says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <clears throat> Here's a man in my church who actually was born on Crete. He loves this passage. <clears throat> Their testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. The Cretans are always liars. No exercising of self-control over their speech. They're evil beasts, so they're bestial in their behavior. Uh, they're basically lazy gluttons. They're exercising no control over their appetites and their desires. And they pay attention to myths, which is they're tickling their ears with men's opinions instead of spiritually directing their lives by dependently and obediently following the Scripture. Just like our society. What are the themes of our society? Look within. It can't be wrong because it feels so right. Let it all loose tonight. Just do it. Think differently. Try it. You'll like it. I'm loving it. Our culture is pretty weak on sensible, right? Don't you listen to the news and go, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. They're not sensible. That's why Paul, he makes it the number one quality. He tells elders they need to be sensible, older men, assumption, older women, younger men, younger women, all on Crete, all are to develop this exercise of sensibility to cultivate it you don't get it in a day you pursue it so sensibility is essential in fact the sensible woman will learn to discipline her thinking ladies your cross-reference your main passage on this is philippians 4 8 you know it whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is of good repute if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise what dwell let your mind dwell on these things. The sensible woman dwells on things that are true. And sometimes you verbally say, no, I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm not going to think on that. I'm going to think on truth, on things that are worthy. You have to battle here internally. This is true spirituality, battling internally. The sensible discipline their thoughts and a sensible believer also practices good stewardship. 
with their money. You budget. You don't abuse credit cards. You control your spending. You avoid getting into debt. Say, what about singles? I'm so glad you asked. Singles. Dating couples are careful what, and write this down, dads, okay, this is what you're looking for, what promises they make, what gifts they give, and how much time they spend together. Promises, gifts, and time. You don't talk marriage on the third date, even if you're courting. You don't give her a diamond ring just because she's nice. You don't say, I love you, unless you're ready to back it up. You don't spend more time together than a married couple. Use your mind. Learn to live sensibly. Sensibly. Number four, morally pure. Morally pure. Titus, this word pure is specifically, literally meaning to be chaste or sexually pure. That's what he's talking about. And for the first century wife, now that she's come to Christ, she's free to minister door to door. She's no longer a slave in her home. So she's free to minister, but in that freedom, she was to maintain a purity, uh, you know, before the Lord and before God and to her husband. And that was a problem on Crete. It's a problem today. Now, understand, don't misread purity by thinking that it's always about a list of things that I got to keep on the outside here. Purity actually first begins with your heart, a heart that is focused on Christ. And we learn that from 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, where it says, We shall see Him just as He is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Purity starts by remaining intimate with the only pure one, right? The closer that we are with Him, then the more purity will demonstrate because He's pure. Secondly, purity starts by remaining intimate with the only pure one. And what we have is that if you're not doing that, you're not going to develop the second element here, I'm sorry, which is developed by keeping external rules. Uh, No, it's actually purity is not external rules. It's internal. It starts within your inner person. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. According to Christ, purity is an inner attitude that issues forth in holy behavior. Did you get that? First, we're looking at Christ. Second, we're making sure that our hearts are right, that we're making sure that we're maintaining our hearts before the Lord. So the issue of purity is not how far you can go uh, before you sin, but how intimate you are with Christ and how disciplined you are with your inner thoughts and inner desires. And one of the things that is not understood by a lot of Christians is that, again, your focus on Christ and your internal heart, but also because immorality is so powerful and our desires are so difficult sometimes to deal with, thirdly, purity is also maintained by sensible fleeing. Fleeing. You know what it means to be fleeing in the New Testament when he says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful us? Or when he says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. The word flee actually literally means run in terror. How do you like that? Run in terror. Strong, young desires demand some running away. A biblical response to intense drives is get away. Now how do you do that? How do you flee? All P's, here they are, ready? You flee by preparing for situations. When you read about Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Potiphar's wife was going after Joseph continually. So he knew, he was prepared, that when she made the big grab, okay, that he's going to have to run. He knew in advance. No one is above strong desire, so determine what you will do before you get there. Secondly, flee by planning your environment. Stay public, stay in the light, stay active, don't stay up late. I used to tell singles, don't go to the beach to watch the submarine races at night. You know, um, And for men today, and, and for women, try. You, you can't always do this at your workplace. But you should try to not be in a room alone with a woman. You should try not to be in a car alone with a woman. You can't always prevent that, but that should be something if you're planning your environment. Number three, flee by picking your people. Picking your people, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. That's primarily about doctrine. But understand, you could add a flirtatiousness. The only people who flirt in the Bible are harlots. 
Don't bind yourself to anyone who will corrupt your character or your purity or your doctrine. Number four, flee by pondering your appearance. Pondering your appearance. Clothing choices make statements. Do they not? They do. What are you saying by your clothing choices? And ask yourself, what is the potential message that's received? You can't freak yourself out over that. But if you can, ladies, ask an older godly woman about modesty, not a guy. All right? Number five, flee by pouncing on your thoughts. Uh, Turn away from evil thoughts. Concentrate on healthy thoughts. Again, back to Philippians 4.8. The true, the pure, the right, the good repute. Dwell on those things. Martin Luther, who was in our foyer out here today, I so appreciate that. He said this, You can't stop the birds from flying over, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. Right? So thoughts and temptations are going to come, but you don't have to dwell on them. So pounce on your thoughts. Number six, paralyze your glances. This is helpful to men. In Job 31.1, Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze, look long at a virgin? Make a covenant with your eyes not to take the long look. Look lustfully at anything. Don't take the second look. Turn away. Change your mental channel. Again, focusing on Christ first. Maintaining intimacy with Him. Making sure you're worried and concerned. uh, Not worried, but concerned about your inner man. And three, you're fleeing. You're willing to flee. Now let me add to purity. uh, Again, what the Bible would talk about and the positive expression of purity would be liking your husband as well in intimacy and marriage. Uh, In the beginning... Moses' spirit-directed editorial on the day six of creation in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, For this cause a man shall leave his father, leave his mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, oversimplified, leaving is a dramatic departure. By the way, side note, when you men give your daughters away in marriage, I don't care how godly the guy is, it's going to feel like you're giving your little girl to a gorilla, Okay? I get that. But understand this. Leaving actually has to do with, it actually actually makes the statement of of amputation. So when the preacher asks, who giveth this woman to be married to this man? And you say, her mother and I, a chop. Okay? You've said, now you say, well, I'm not willing to do that. Then don't give her away. But if you give her away, you've got to give her away. There's got to be a leaving and a cleaving, a new relationship that's begun. And the more you mess with them, uh, the more you're actually overstepping your bounds. Then it's, it says to cleave. That actually literally means to weld. You're welded together. And one flesh is talking about physical intimacy. So though it's distorted by the world, God is the one who designed the whole program. One flesh involves the complete identification uh, of one personality with another and commonality of interests, pursuits, and purposes which is best expressed in physical union. So, my mentor, uh, MacArthur, says marriage is for procreation, it's for partnership, it's a picture of the church, it's for purity, it's for pleasure. But if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, really quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it says in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5, this challenge, 1 Corinthians 7, it says, because of immoralities, that's our day, Let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. At marriage ceremony, you gave yourself to them. Stop depriving one another, verse 5, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. God just commanded you in these verses four times. There are four commands here to take care of each other in marriage. Outside of marriage, never. 27 times, no, in the New Testament. Inside of marriage, always. That means whenever a husband wants intimacy, you're to grant it. Whenever a wife wants intimacy, you're to grant it. Under the binding commitment of love and adjusted by love, I understand that. But if you're struggling with that here, this is why God said for you to be under the training of an older godly woman in general. 
Because if they are older godly women, they've figured this out and they can help you. They can help you. Some of you are glorifying God in this area. Some of you are disappointing God in this area. For God expects you to take care of each other. You need to be one flesh in marriage. It is God's plan for husbands. It's God's plan for wives. Hebrews 13.4 Let the marriage bed be undefiled. So live sensibly in this area. Sensible wisdom. Wives have after taking care of four kids in the house <laughs> and, and a ton of chores and then making a fantastic dinner for your husband and all that wears you out and you got nothing left, then, may I suggest... Let the house be a little dirtier. Do a few less chores. Make peanut butter sandwiches for dinner. And then be intimate with your husband. You'll have a happier marriage. There's no command for a spotless house. There's no command for an incredible, fantastic meal. There is multiple commands. Take care of each other physically in marriage. It's a command. Purity demands you take care of each other. Purity demands it. Now, some couples actually plan to be intimate. They schedule it. Now, with the younger couples, this is anathema. Uh, With older couples, they're going, man, that's the answer I've been looking for. One missionary couple, no names. They have a large family, massively large family. Sunday afternoon, everybody knows that's dad and mom time. Dad and mom alone time. And as the kids got older, they understood what was going on. And it was okay. It was okay. Very busy. I know a couple that said they were intimate on each day of the week that had a T in its name. And the husband said, yeah, Tuesday, Thursday, Tatterday, and Tunday. Okay, so, um, purity. Purity is both, you know, negatively but also positively. Number five, domestically. We're almost done. Domestically, be a worker at home. The Bible's very clear. Uh, are you ready for this? The Greek word worker at home comes from two words put together. Are you ready? This is going to shock you. It, they mean to work at home. How about that? That's what it means. It's not, you know, tricky. In fact, First Corinthians, excuse me, First Timothy five fourteen contains the same idea. Paul says, "I want the younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house." And the word "keep" there, "keep" is despote, despot, warlord. She's the warlord of the house. She's to keep that house. Work at home. Uh, Now, God's truth is an offense today. If you're in any way a feminist, it's going to step on your air hose, for sure. But you realize that you can't say this quality is cultural. You can't take a word in the midst of a list and yank it out. Because otherwise, you have to say then, loving your husband, loving your kids, be submission... Uh, being, you know, kind is also cultural. It's not. It's not a cultural issue. It's stuck right in the middle by the Holy Spirit and all these non-cultural principles. The world looks at worker at home and says, slave, confining, boring, frustrating, a decision made only by the less intelligent. And I know you ladies feel this. God pictures the worker at home as her busiest and best priority where she fills out her commitment to be a godly wife and a godly mother. Now, this has nothing to do with you ladies wanting to, you know, fix cars or, or learn kung fu. I mean, it has nothing to do with that. This is just God's focus and priority and the direction of your life. With all the new freedom of a born-again woman had in the first century, uh, she's not to go about from house to house being a busybody or being lazy. She's to work, and she's to do her work at home. And the Bible's telling you that a one, uh, one, uh, the, the godly wife, the young wife's goal is to make her home a place of contentment. We see this Proverbs 31 in intelligence and peace. She's to manage the affairs of her household in such a way that, that her husband and her children are blessed in countless ways. Her work of housekeeping, picking up, cleaning, hospitality, shopping, cooking, washing, investing, nursing, chauffeuring, helping the poor, caring for her family are viewed by God as spiritual ministry. Spiritual ministry. Again, this is direction. This is priority. And because she's a worker at home, she is keeping her home a place where Christ is honored. So if you're single, you're learning to budget now. You're learning to cook now you're learning to clean now you're learning about these skills now get ready now you can do that if you're single 
clean your room, uh, organize your desk, clean out your car so you can see the floor mats, uh, arrange your trunk, all of that. Listen, the only time you get to be a princess is if you really are one, all right? So understand, the greatest among you shall be your servant. It's the highest quality. Cultivate the skills of managing a home now by godly example in older women discipleship. Clarify. Listen, if you're a single woman, clarify. What is your purpose in life? Let me tell you. The Bible tells you, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, says, secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Drink up this time for His glory. It's unique. Minister unhindered by family. Get an education. Even work in a career by God's strength. But if you're not a celibate, prepare for marriage. Prepare for motherhood. Prepare for running a household. Get trained to be a worker at home. All right? Number six, socially. So you're to be kind. A godly woman is not only Christ-like in character, but she pursues doing good deeds, motivated by mercy and grace for her family and the saints and the ain'ts. Like Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, the kind woman is known for all her gifts that she has given away to the needy. Uh, This was a major weakness on Crete. And so in Crete, there was a massive challenge to manifest good deeds and this expression of kindness there to profess good deeds and, and to, to be zealous for good deeds and to be engaged in good deeds and to be an example of good deeds. And we'll look at that as we look at men as well. So because our Lord was kind, His followers are to be kind. Now in the past, uh, about two, three years ago, uh, the only way that I would drink coffee is if I could destroy the taste. Anybody with me on that? And uh, my wife, on the other hand, was a, a coffee-cultured, we'd say snob, um, so here we are, right at airport, 5 a.m. We've been flying all night long. Uh, I haven't slept much. And she's trying to buy her cup of drugs in order to get three or four brain cells working. And uh, she's wiped out. And, and in front of her is even a, a worse wiped-out stewardess. And she's off an all-nighter flight, is just ahead of her. She's trying to buy her cup of Christian cocktail. And... The barista looks at her and says, cash only. Well, the stewardess has only got a credit card. That's all she's got. So my gift of giving bride uh, immediately pays for her cup of liquid life. Why? Because she's kind. She's kind. Young godly women are to be kind. Filled with good deeds. Motivated by mercy and grace. It's one of the ways that we point to Christ. Actions that put Christ on display. Kindness strengthens marriage. It strengthens parenting. And it strengthens your witnessing. Number seven. Okay, spiritually, last one. Subject to her husband. says, And the, Paul adds here, So that the Word of God may not be dishonored. The Word of God may not be dishonored. The world hears subjection and shouts doormat. The Word hears no subjection and shouts dishonor. Five times in the New Testament, wives are are to be subject to their own husbands, every time, own husbands, and I believe, it's a little bit dicey, but I believe each time it's it's actually in the middle voice, which means she, she subjects herself. And she does this, ranking herself under like a private does a sergeant. It's a military term. It's not to every man, to her own husband, so that God's word and the Lord's reputation is not injured, slandered, or insulted. Now, how could God be insulted by a non-submissive wife? Well, God designed men and women. God created marriage, Christ did, and Christ designed the authority and submission. Why? Because, again, not because of culture, not primarily um, because of the created order, though that does figure in the created order of 1 Timothy 2, but because it reflects His nature. Hey, where do you get that from? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to get there. The triune God consists of three equal persons, each person unique, but also one. And after the incarnation, after the incarnation, Christ submitted to the Father. 
Marriage is made up of a man and a woman who are one, and yet each is unique. And God's design in this is to reflect his character of a wife submitting to her own husband. As Paul confronts the women in Corinth who were functioning not by God's design, he begins by making this statement in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Look at it. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. We like that. And the man is the head of a woman. And then he says this radical statement, God is the head of Christ. Now, just like authority submission of the Godhead after the Incarnation, so God designed for husbands and wives to reflect the Trinity. And submission does not mean that men are better. It doesn't mean that they're smarter. By far. I married someone with a way higher IQ than me. I wonder one time how she puts up with me. We go into museums. She reads all the placards. She remembers everything. I go into museums and look for shiny blue objects. So it's different. It's like a great play with two great actors, each with two different parts. It's like the doubles tennis team. Each have your side of the court that you've got to take care of. It's like a pilot and a co-pilot. You each have assignments that you have to fulfill to make this thing work. God is the one who designed authority submission. Therefore, a wife, not to put herself in her husband's authority, is to attack the character and wisdom of God. To say, again, after the incarnation, for a wife not to submit to her husband is to say Jesus shouldn't have submitted to the Father in his humanity. Shouldn't have done it. Uh, it's, that's what's at stake here. And when a woman submits herself, she's actively expressing an expectation for her husband to take the lead, to fill out his role, prime in the pump, that he'd be the leader that he needs to be. You say, what about men? Stick around. We're there. They're coming up next. Both men and women, listen, have to be born again. You cannot do this in your own strength. Plus, you've got to be filled with the Spirit. As a Christian, you've got to be dependent upon Him to work through you walking according to the scripture in obedience and you got to be willing to deny self it's not about you it's about what god wants and him and glorifying him in order to live out god's design you can't do that ladies are you going to live by the word or are you going to live by the world are you delighting in god's design or disliking god's design are you pursuing god's will or pursuing your will you're going to have to paddle now against the riptide of this world in order to thrive by living by his word don't wait. Pursue discipleship with older godly women, plural. Not just one discipler. Guys, same thing. You're already in it here. That's why you're here. Older godly men get mentored. Begin to be transparent enough to say, how do I do this? How can I do this better? How can I live this out? Marriage does not have to be a three-ring circus, right? Starts with the engagement ring then goes to the wedding ring, and then ends in the suffering. Okay, so. <laughs> God's design is perfect. It doesn't mean you're not going to have difficulties. It doesn't mean you're not going to have trials. But it means you can taste of what God had planned. And it's not for your sorrow, but for your joy by living out His design. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You again for this first session. We pray that you would take your word and change our lives and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, if there are any who don't know you, that you would begin that process of cracking through that hard heart and awakening them by regeneration so they could respond to you in faith and repentance. And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask that you would use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.